Hey, Richard Gottlieb. Rick Burns. How you doing? I'm doing great. Got a good show today. I know. We're finally going to go shopping. I'm so excited that we're going to go shopping. We are beyond thrilled to to welcome Showcase CEO Samir Kulkarni to the show because he is entering the U.S. market with the Showcase stores. He is the CEO and owner, and this is going to be really exciting. You are going to want to strap in and listen to this because this is really important for every toy manufacturer and everybody loves toys in the U.S. They are a major Canadian chain of stores, well over 100 stores. They're coming into the U.S. with 25, the first new chain to enter the U.S. since forever. This is a first for us, and this is the Playground Podcast with me, Chris Byrne, my co-host and cohort, Richard Gottlieb. We are supported by Global Toy Experts, The Toy Guy, and Beacon Media Group. And with that, Samir, so glad to have you here. (laughs) Thank you so much, Chris. Great to be with you. Great to see you again, Richard. So why don't you start by telling us about Showcase, what it is, and why you're braving the U.S. market. So it's my favorite topic. Uh, <laughs> Showcase is a, a small format, specialty retailer in uh, major malls. Uh, we started in Edmonton, Alberta, in uh, Western Canada about 26 years ago, 1994. And uh, we've expanded across uh, Canada, uh, selling uh, emerging trends, mostly from social media in uh, in toys, but also uh, health and beauty and home and kitchen and gifts. And so uh, the business has expanded across Canada. We have 109 stores here and we uh, are now uh, on our way to the States. And as Richard said, you're opening 25 stores in the U.S. this summer. You already have a few here, right? That's right. We opened 10 stores in the Northeast, uh, for example, at King of Prussia and uh, outside of Philly, just pre-pandemic. And uh, so, of course, things got delayed uh, with the uh, with the pandemic, but uh, we got back on track, completed that pilot of those 10 stores. And now we're actually opening 27 uh, ah. as of uh, as of this uh, summer. Here, if I walk into your store, what do I see when I walk in the front door? So showcase is all about discovery. So you're going to see products that you have not seen elsewhere. Or you may have heard about, you may have seen on social media, but never really held and touched and tried before you buy. And so you're going to walk into a little bit of a wonderland where you can see uh, all kinds of off the wall and trending social media items. So uh, in the toy space, we have uh, some great branded trends that are trending right now. We also have uh, private label goods that uh, that fill a trend that you may have heard about or, or just been exposed to, but never really seen it up close. And so it's something different uh, every day that you walk in. And your stores are about 1,500 square feet, so they're not big. Uh, exactly. They're, 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 they're small, and they're, uh, it's a very high-touch, uh, high-service model. And so you've got uh, a sales associate a few feet away from you who's going to demonstrate and introduce you to products. And so it's a very fun and interactive experience. So back in the day, back in uh, you know 2005, when remote-control helicopters were all the rage. No one had seen a remote control helicopter actually flying or being able to actually experience flying one themselves. And so to walk into a showcase store back then, now what, 17 years ago, you'd see helicopters flying all overhead and it was the coolest uh, thing. So it's that sort of um, experiential environment we try to create. It, It would seem to me that if you're a store featuring a hot interest products, and you can't carry a lot of inventory, 
you're going to have to have a hell of a supply chain. But can you describe to us how you keep in stock? So inventory management is really the name of the game. As you mentioned, uh, with the trend business, uh, where products come out of nowhere and they, they also peak quickly and then end up going to mass retailers and uh, uh, eventually to every corner store. So, so timing uh, is absolutely critical for us because we always want to be first to market, be first and fast. When the, the, the excitement is the highest, when we can add value to the market by educating consumers and entertaining them and showing them something new, the minute it becomes a commoditized item that's available elsewhere, then it becomes a pricing game. And uh, that's where we, we're not going to be able to shine as, as well. And so supply chain is absolutely critical. So the, the key for us is it starts with trend technology. So that is identifying the trend. And when we talk about trends, we're talking about very specific items or brand names that are trending in the marketplace. And uh, especially with social media, the pace of those trends is faster and faster. And so on any given day, we're tracking 6 million potential trends. Oh. And, and we have... Uh, automated uh, algorithms that are that are checking to see you know what is spiking today what has increased in search volume or social sentiment or uh, celebrity mentions things like that versus yesterday or last week and is it a spike that's only local is it regional is it national is it global and based on sifting through all that data we have a hit list of products that are the top products that we want to have on the shelf today and so uh, we actually have real-time sourcing where our buyers are uh, sourcing products based on real-time data that came in overnight. And then we can get product onto the shelf in days. And so that agility, that nimbleness of trying to keep up with the consumer, that really flows through the whole supply chain. So everything from the trend identification to uh, the network of factories and the real-time sourcing of inventory to air freight uh, as needed to get it onto the shelf immediately to controlling the distribution centers and the distribution algorithms to get product onto the shelf to the planogramming and the pricing and the marketing, you know, down the funnel. So really that agility is built into the whole chain because that's the trend business. As you mentioned, you're able to get product on the shelf really fast. I read that you are able to get things from concept to delivery in about 53 days. Mm -hmm. That's our average. And in some oh. cases faster and some cases, unfortunately slower, but we, <laughs> we move very quickly. Can you tell us, some products that you were ahead of the curve and having in your stores before the Walmarts and the Targets. I'll give you um, a, an example from the branded toy business. So back in the day when Disney Frozen had first come out, uh, Disney, of course, has great relationships with all the major toy and mass vendors, uh, retailers, I should say. And the challenge with Frozen was because it was a new property. Mass retail had not allocated enough space, and it was really a, a, a big surprise hit. And the market completely dried up of any inventory of uh, Disney Frozen. And it was very much a, um, a fun and interactive trend. Little girls wanted to dress up like Anna and Elsa. And uh, so it was everything from plush uh, toys to dress up to uh, backpacks and everything in between that, uh, that was uh, very popular. And so our trend technology identified this product. We weren't selling a lot of movie-related merchandise at the time. This is back in 2013, if I'm not mistaken. And we went and scoured the four corners of the earth and found every unit of Disney Frozen merchandise of any kind that we could uh, through their uh, licensees and distributors and so on. And so we actually had, uh, in the heyday of Frozen, 
250 SKUs oh, wow. just of Disney Frozen. <laughs> and imagine that in a tiny store. It was half yeah. the store was, was Disney Frozen. And we actually, you know, fun fact is Disney actually called us and said, how are you guys doing it? How come Showcase has Disney Frozen? And even Disney's own stores didn't have uh, merchandise of Disney Frozen. And so so there's an example of being able to catch uh, a trend quickly. And it's not that it's a major surprise. Of course, there were news news articles about there not being enough inventory and so on, but it's really about catching the news before it hits the newspaper. Uh, by the time it, it 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 hits the newspaper and everyone knows about it, we're already you know two to four months ahead of the curve. And so uh, there would be one example from the branded uh, from the branded toy space. And then I'll give you another example uh, more recently, which is uh, all about fidget toys. So the pandemic has been uh, crazy, and uh, kids being stuck at home had been bouncing off the walls. And uh, parents are trying to get them off screens. Uh, anxiety levels are higher. And so fidget toys became a, a huge trend as uh, the pandemic started. And so we uh, developed the largest assortment of fidget toys, popping games and stress balls. And uh, again, about uh, 250 SKUs again in that, in that category um, and really uh, led the way on that back in 2020. Then it became much more popular in 2021, started to appear in mass retail, but you know, there's another example of uh, catching onto a trend, giving the customer what they're looking for uh, early, early in the life cycle. What impresses me so much is that in many cases, retail, the trade, is all about risk management right now. And it's about making sure you have inventory and really managing risk, especially on a property. You seem to be flying right in the face of that and saying, we're predicting this is going to be hot, so we're going in on it. Uh, that's sort of old school toy industry. Talk a little bit about how, how you got to this philosophy. That's a great question. I'll explain the evolution of our thinking around trend identification. I think in the old days, and you talked about old world thinking, in the old days, we would go to trade shows, we would talk to vendors, and we'd listen very carefully about what the vendors were pushing. What, what they had bet on, what they had inventory of, and so on. And what we found is that that traditional way of buying is uh, sort of so listening to the vendors is very hit or miss because vendors have their own uh, bets that they've made, their own agenda, and so on. They're also trying to manage different channels. And we really turned that on its head and decided to only listen or almost only listen to what consumers want. And so the listening technology that we've developed over the years is literally, you know, uh, eavesdropping on what the consumer is looking for. What are they searching for? What are they what are they uh, making the next TikTok about and so on. And then giving them what they want, uh, whether or not there's a vendor that has inventory or not, we at least know what the con consumer wants. And so that's one big way we de-risk the buy. And the second thing is of course we uh, we are constantly reevaluating based on new data. So we are changing our prices daily. We are changing our planograms weekly. We are reacting very quickly to what is changing in the marketplace. And it may be driven by consumers and their, their taste. It may be driven by social media memes or new, you know, new trends happening on social. It could be driven by celebrity mentions. It could be driven by competition as well, where, where mass coming into a big trend may change things for us. And so uh, I would say it's listening to the consumer first as as rule one, and then rule two is adapting, 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 because things are changing so quickly, and it seems like they're changing faster than ever. Well, I am astonished that you have the internal discipline to maintain planogram integrity when it changes on a weekly basis and pricing when it changes on a daily basis. 
How do you do that? <laughs> yeah, tell us. We want to go into competition with you. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> how long? How long is this podcast? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a, a short question, but a long answer, I guess. I'll. I'll uh, how do we do it? So. Sure really building in agility into everything we do is is really the key so that we can pivot as uh, as needed. I'll tell you what we don't have as a, a part of the answer, which is that there are a lot of things that are traditional in retail that we don't uh, use uh, in the same way. So for example, our buyers are not restricted to an open to buy. Okay. They don't have a budget that they need to buy for. Um, we know that trends are very elastic, very fluid. And sometimes you need to place a big bet immediately and it really doesn't matter uh, how much inventory you have of something else. If that's the hot trend, you need to chase it. Um, and so we don't have the traditional uh, restrictions of an open to buy. And uh, again, having a flat organization and you know very nimble decision-making process helps us to really uh, capture those trends as they happen. Another example is that we don't have a min-max system in a typical mass retail way. So one store may have six units on the shelf. The next store may have 600 units on the shelf because the trend is that much bigger in that second store. Um, and so all of that gives us flexibility in, in, uh, in how we do things. But it's also about being humble and listening to the consumer because the tastes change so quickly and then reacting quickly. Obviously, our, our margins will be on the higher side because it's a high rent, high service model. And so that gives us a bit of a cushion in case we need to discount and mark down. But that's the way we manage that risk. I'm curious as to what your infrastructure is like, because as you describe this and you have 600 in one place and 60 in another place, I'm just seeing the control tower at JFK airport with, with all these planes coming in all the time. How do you manage all of this? The key, I think, for us is uh, systems and uh, central control. I think that is critical. Um, I'll tell you, in our early days, back in the 90s, we used to actually have a franchise model where each store was uh, owned by a, uh, an independent franchisee and we would collect a royalty and they would buy what they wanted. Uh, and they would price it the way they wanted. They would participate in the promotions that they wanted to or didn't want to. And what we found was that was an impossible model in the trend business, because to put the time into developing consensus from coast to coast on a strategy, when things are changing so quickly, uh, and this was back in the day when things weren't changing as quickly as today, was just impossible. And so what we did is we actually pursued a corporate model. And so all of our stores are owned and operated by us. There are leases, our inventory, our people. And so you get a lot of coordination and you get a lot, you can really move very quickly uh, because you're not um, looking for consensus or uh, in the sense that you can come to a decision very quickly and move with that. Uh, so central control is, I think, critical. And the other thing is systems. So uh, our backend is SAP. Uh, and so we've got re a real-time ERP giving us data. Our e-commerce platform is Shopify integrated in. Um, and then we do same-day delivery. And so that's integrated into DoorDash through a national partnership. Um, we uh, have a, a large loyalty club of 2 million uh, insiders. And we market to them with personalized marketing through Salesforce. Uh, and so we're using these best-of-breed softwares, putting them together. And so there's a, there's a good tech stack, a good tech backbone behind the organization that gives us data and gives us control and gives us the ability to react very quickly. So should vendors who are listening to this show, should they contact Showcase or is it that you contact them when you see a hot product? How does it work? 
Well, it's a bit of both. So we definitely uh, love to have strong relationships with vendors and partnerships. Uh, we've worked together with uh, our, our toy vendors for 20 plus years. And so we nurture those relationships. Uh, at the same time, we're listening to the consumer first. And so if they have a hot product, we've already called them and we're working <laughs> on the strategy uh, right now. Some of the, uh, of the toy companies that you have done business with. A great partnership uh, we have is with Zuru and uh, the mini brands five surprise uh, uh, product, which has been a massive hit. We've been the home of many mini brands, global launches, including uh, three big launches uh, that we did last week. So Zuru would be a, a great example. And, you know, the fun of that product is it's it's the five surprise ball where you open up the ball and there are five little mini foods or mini brands inside. And so it's all about the unboxing. And so what we've done in store, partnering with Zuru is we've done unboxing zones in store where kids will, will buy their purchase, walk over to the unboxing zone. Their parents can, you know, uh, film a video uh, of them opening it up and seeing if they get the limited edition uh, one that they were looking for, right? Things like that. So uh, Zuru is an example of a great, great vendor partnership. Chris, I think there's something very interesting here. And that is, this is a high, high tech company is taking advantage of all the 21st century system right. to create a business model that is out in front. And yet these stores are located in shopping malls and malls are perceived as very 20th century. So Samir, I find that an interesting juxtaposition. Can you talk to us a little bit about the state of the shopping center in general, as you see it, and why you have chosen malls as a place to place your store? Sure, I'd love to. And I'll, I'll tell you, that's not the first time we've been asked that question, Richard. Uh, but uh, the way I would uh, look at it is that uh, there are many large e-commerce players that are really good at what they do if you have a shopping list. Uh, if you know what you want to buy, let's call that intent-based purchasing, where you want to buy these eight items, there are great websites where you can go do that. Uh, Showcase is not a shopping list retailer. Showcase is a discovery retailer. People come to Showcase to see what's new, see what's trending, try it before they buy it. Uh, and so the mall is the perfect environment for that because people go to the mall, especially those A malls, those top malls in North America, they go to those malls to have fun. They go there usually not alone. They go there with friends or family. They're going to socialize. They're going to grab a bite to eat. They're going to see the latest uh, fashion trends. And they're going to see the latest social media trends that showcase. They're going to interact with them. They're going to have a great time. And it's an experience. It's a way to spend the day. So those e-commerce retailers are, are excellent for certain types of things, for those needs, but for the wants, you know, for that emotional connection, the heart of the matter, you know, that's where the shopping mall can come in. Now, the key is, it has to be the right malls uh, and the right location within the mall for us, um, where there is that walk by traffic, where there is that that psychology of people walking through the mall wanting to discover. So if we pick the malls correctly, then the business model works very well. Is there a place in the malls that that is more advantageous than others? I would assume that there are certain stores that it's it's attractive to be near. But but how do you go about determining where in the mall you want to be? So we uh, we work very closely with uh, mall experts uh and uh, look at a mall map. Um, we're always looking for certain retailers near us, you're right. 
Um, but a simple a simple answer would be the food court usually is where people congregate. It's not it's not and it's not just the uh, the uh, customers in the mall that head there, uh, but it's also the staff within the mall because there are thousands of people working in every mall. And so they're going to the food court for lunch as well. So you just have a constant flow of traffic. And when we have a, you know, a walk by a stream of traffic walking by, there's going to be something in our window that'll that'll attract their attention and bring them in. You have this very sophisticated system for identifying trends. Have you ever been wrong? Yes. <laughs> yes, we have been wrong. Um, the, <laughs> thanks for bringing that up. Chris. No, I'm, uh, I'm just curious. I, I'm just curious because it's it's such a risky business. You're right. And we actually have a, 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 a phrase uh, internally that if a buyer is is right all the time, then they're not trying hard enough. Because they're not pushing the envelope, and we're not we're not uh, being experimental and seeing what will work. And so we always want to be pushing the envelope. Uh, we have that that hall of fame uh, at the office of those big hits, and we also have the wall of shame of the ones that didn't work out. <laughs> and uh, every we all have it, and we've all been right and wrong a lot. And and that's part of our humility and sort of understanding what the data is telling us and learning and refining the model accordingly. But here's the way we look at those uh, those those hits or those misses. And in fact, Disney Frozen, again, if I can bring up that example, was one that we originally discarded because the 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 search term that people were looking for was frozen, the word frozen. And uh, we had not yet made that connection to the movie. And so we were we were saying to ourselves, our trend team was saying, look, we don't sell frozen food. We don't have freezers in the store. What this is an irrelevant, you know, irrelevant keyword. And we were discarding it. And then, of course, the uh, we, we connected the dots eventually. But the way I would look at it in terms of hits and misses is that we are placing relatively small bets on many items. Uh, and so let's say we, we place a bet on 10 different items and we buy a thousand units of each. Even if eight of them are total failures, which, and, and it's, it's more like 10 or 20% uh, percent of them are, would be failures, but let's even say, even if 80% of them were failures, you still have one or two big hits in there. And uh, that one big hit, after you sold through the first thousand, you buy a hundred thousand more. And so that pays for all the mistakes. Uh, and so in that sense, we we like to be we're roughly 90 percent right, I would say, on trends. And so that's a good percent as long as we're we're learning from, you know, that one that we got wrong and then refining the model for next time. Mr. Mayor, is what you have created only possible in the 21st century? If you went back in the time machine, would you be able to create an analog version of what you do? Yes, absolutely. And this speaks to the founding of our company. So in Edmonton in 1994, um, the company was founded by Amin Jivraj, who was a process control engineer working in the oil and gas industry. And he uh, thought to himself, the way to riches is to open a Canadian retail chain. So he switched from oil and gas to Canadian retail. So this is a consummate entrepreneur. And but he, he had a very, very uh, simple idea. And he and I are still partners today. And we've, we've built the business together. He's an amazing guy. Um, but he had a simple uh, concept, which is that next to the cash desk at store one, which was in Meadowlark Town Center in Edmonton, Alberta, next to the cash desk was a notepad. And he told the staff that every time a customer walks in and asks for a product we don't have, write it down. And at the end of the day, fax it into our, the office and we will go find that product. And it's a very simple concept, and we call that lost sales. And the 
The great thing about salespeople is they always want to tell you about the sale they lost, the sale they could have had if they had that product. And so we would get this list from every store that got opened and that would get faxed in and that would uh, form the sourcing agenda for the buying team. And today, our trend technology is precisely the same, the same DNA from 1994, only just accelerated through technology. But it's essentially listening directly to what the consumer wants. So even today, uh, you could walk into a showcase store, you could ask about a product that we don't have. And in most uh, companies, the transaction would end there. But our staff walk over to SAP, they type in the exact phrase that the consumer used, whether it's a, uh, a brand name or whether it's you know blue widget that I saw on TikTok, whatever it may be. And that feeds directly into our algorithms. And then we are listening for how many times did Blue Widget get mentioned yesterday? And then that can help accelerate the sourcing of that item. So, yes, uh, whether it's old tech or new tech, the idea is listen to the customer. And I'm wondering about scalability, because if something hits, you've got to be able to get it into your stores pretty quickly. And so you're taking a flyer on something and suddenly it hits and maybe you didn't anticipate it was going to be a hit. But how do you go about scaling up? That has been a question that we've asked ourselves over the years. And we, we, when we were at 10 stores, we said, well, if we had 50 stores, how would we find enough hot inventory to fill those 50 stores? And so even today, we ask that same question, how do you keep the shelves full on a hot item? On the other hand, as we grow, the scale has given us a lot of advantage. For example, we can contract manufacture products in very large quantities in a way that we may not have been able to do in the past. And so we have deeper connections and relationships with a network of factories. So we can bring large amounts of product to the marketplace and airing goods in on an emergency basis and you know, as expensive as it may be is sometimes the only way to keep the shelves full on a hot item. The other thing is that we can broaden beyond just the core trend. So there may be a, a, a hot trend happening right now. Fidget, you know, fidget toys might be an example. And then there's, there's so many places you can go with that trend. There's so many different types of items, uh, different, uh, different play patterns to items. One of our, our big hits of 2021 was a fidget mystery box. Because part of the fun is not knowing which fidget item you you, you want or, or are going to get next. And so packaging it in a different way can revive a trend and expand a trend. And so we have different weapons in our in our toolkit to 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 make the most of a trend as it comes up. And a follow up question to that. How do you know when it's time to get out of something? <laughs> Again, it's the. Uh, it's the customer uh, telling us. Uh, so the customer tells us very quickly. Our sales change very quickly as a trend slows down. And some trends can be extended. Uh, sometimes you, it's just a matter of averaging cost and price down. Uh, sometimes it's a matter of the trend evolving uh, into the next iteration, the next generation. And so we're watching social media carefully to see what people are talking about. But the, the number one thing that always tells us a trend is over is, uh, for us at least, is when a mass retailer says it's uh, a popular item. Because once they're on it, the, the fun goes away for us to a certain extent because that novelty factor starts to soften. What is your vision for the U.S.? Is it going to be coast to coast? I, I certainly hope so. Um, <laughs> in, in terms of population, uh, Canada, in English Canada, there's about 25 million people. We have 109 stores. And so, you know, in the U.S. at 10 times the population, you should have 10 times the stores. That's a thousand. Even if I'm off by half, it's 500. So we hope we hope to get there soon. 
Um, what we have done is uh, we have established a distribution center outside of Buffalo, New York. Uh, so that's 150,000 square feet uh, building that we uh, bought and opened uh, earlier this year. And that can support about 150 stores. So our hope is in the Northeast and the Midwest uh, and the Great Lakes uh, area, we can we can get those 150 going. The next plateau would be to open a DC on the West Coast and then open up new markets there. As I look at the list of malls that you're coming to in the in the U.S., it's a real mix. There are some mid-tier malls, there's some upper-tier malls, there's some some average malls. How did you decide what locations you wanted to go into? The quality of real estate is the key to any any bricks and mortar chain. And uh, so partnering with the major landlords in the U.S., and these are the same partners we worked with on the original 10-store pilot, uh, we have looked across their portfolio, uh, Simon and Brookfield being uh, the two major ones, uh, looked across their portfolio at which are their, truly their A malls, where there are locations that are in great areas of the mall at rents that are affordable. And that's really the key. The rents have to make sense. Uh, for the the realities of retail these days. And also we are advertising heavily to drive traffic to those malls as well. And so when you factor in all those criteria and look at the geography of the Northeast and Midwest, what we found is that the model is quite resilient, whether it's in rural areas, whether it's in downtown urban areas, um, the model seems to work. There may be a different traffic pattern through the week, there may be a different type of product line that sells. Remember, we sell more than just toys. And so uh, in certain markets, health and beauty is very popular. In other markets, you know, home and kitchen is more popular. So we find that it's a resilient model. As long as it's a top mall, things work well. Would a toy company come to you and say, hey, I want to launch something with you. I want to use it as a test. Is that something you would participate in? Absolutely. We work with uh, uh, toy companies all the time on those sorts of projects. Um, one of the, the great things about our model, again, having our own stores, our own staff and and staff that listen very closely to the consumer is that we can give great feedback because we are using the products. The staff are literally using and demonstrating our products every day. So they know what's uh, what's great about them, how to use them. They've got tips and tricks. They're getting uh, feedback from consumers all the time. And we actually have a uh, an internal knowledge database, uh, which essentially allows staff to share tips, tricks, uh, ask questions about all of our products internally. And so uh, that becomes a great uh, source of data for our vendors as well. So we, sh we can share that with them in certain contexts. So, so yes, we, we love to experiment and push the envelope. And I, I would say the, the key point there is we want to focus on what the trend requires. So most retailers are set are sort of have a set structure and the product has to fit into their system. We actually will morph around whatever the trend may need. So for example, with Disney Frozen, it was a dress up trend. So we did dress up events. People would dress up as Anna and Elsa and come on into the uh, mall uh, for uh, Shopkins or for uh, mini brands. It's an unboxing trend. People want to complete their collection. So we would do trading events. And so we would partner together with vendors based on the nature of the trend so that we can maximize the trend together. I think it's really impressive that you're doing that in 1,500 square feet and that you, you're not looking at how much does each square foot produce in terms of, of revenue, but you're, looking in a, you're taking a bigger picture approach. Uh, yes, in one way and, and in another way, because space is, space is so precious. 
um, we really need to choose what to focus on. And that that ultimately, there are many, many products in the industry that I'm sure are great sellers, but they may not meet our productivity requirement because we have to have the really the cream of the crop because the stores are small. And that's a, a limiting factor in one way that we're, we're limited by the amount of space in store, but it really allows us to focus on those top trends in each uh, sector. We've talked about how you get into the mall, how you how you get your merchandise. Well, how do you get the people to come? <laughs> Not you got to do more than just walk by traffic in order to get people into your store. No, you're absolutely right, uh, Chris. And for the longest time, we used to say that uh, our biggest advertising cost is rent. We would be paying them all for for occupancy and for traffic, and then people would walk by and we'd we'd have something you know new and hot for them to experience. As retail has evolved. Um, and as we are doing more and more um, of our own proprietary exclusive lines, what we found is that there's a huge opportunity for us to market ourselves on digital channels. And so we are now a major advertiser, uh, advertising our uh, our products, uh, our private label products, as well as uh, third-party branded uh, products through social media. So we're one of Facebook's largest advertisers in Canada. We have one of uh, TikTok's largest uh, retail accounts. The uh, hashtag showcase made me buy it. Has uh, 67, <laughs> 67 million views as of this morning. Uh, and so um, we are just hammering those digital airwaves, getting the word out, because at the end of the day, people may know about a product, but again, it's not on the shopping list. So we need to get the word out to say, hey, we now have this product. It's a real product. Come on in, give it a give it a try. So we have an, an in-house graphic design team. We have an in-house influencer team. Uh, and a video production team. And so we are constantly churning out content that we can put on social media. And then the other part of that, and this ties into bricks and mortar, is that we've developed these uh, algorithms to really quantify the effect of advertising. So if we spend a dollar on TikTok or on Facebook, how many dollars of sales do we actually get from that dollar spent? And how many of those dollars do we get online through our Shopify platform? And how many do we get in store? And uh, we actually track consumer data in store. So we know who is coming and shopping with us. And so we can actually trace it back directly to say that dollar uh, over here that was spent led to, you know, those $5 over there in store. And so that's a pretty neat aspect to our model, which goes beyond simply being in a high traffic mall. Which is something I think everybody in the toy industry should be listening to, because one of the things I say a lot is how do you know if your dollars that you're spending on marketing are working and and you've developed the system for that so i'm very impressed okay samir we're going to ask you the question that we've asked every guest on the fourth season of the podcast what was your favorite play experience as a kid well my my favorite uh, game growing up was tetris ah and oh, I, and to this day, I have one tab open on my computer screen with Tetris on it. And it is almost, I, I promise I haven't been doing this during the podcast, but <laughs> I, I play Tetris all the time. And I've done that since I was, I don't know, six or seven. It's always my go-to and it actually helps me uh, focus even when I'm on, on calls or working on something else. But uh, I always go back to that. I just love Tetris. Samir Kulkarni. CEO of Showcase, you are coming to the United States with your stores. You are going to have a huge impact on, on our toy industry. Thank you so much for spending the time with us today. Thank you so much, Chris. Thank you, Richard. Be well. This is the Playground Podcast with me, Chris Byrne, my co-host and cohort, Richard Gottlieb. We are supported by Global Toy Experts, The Toy Guy, and Beacon Media Group. We'll see you next time.